you want to open your Bibles to John 1, uh, I'm going to be monthly preaching through the book of John. I've decided that uh, First John, John was the first epistle that I taught here in Sunday school, so I thought that the Gospel of John would be the first Gospel that I preached through on an evening service. Um, but just a little background as to why I love John. I've always been drawn to John. Um, it's been a book that I've loved for about as long as I can remember. Uh, and not only just the Gospel of John, but all of John's writings. Um, I've just loved to sit in what John has written for us as the church. I can remember being eight or nine years old and sitting in the pew while the pastor preached. I would be reading the book of Revelation over and over again just because it didn't make any sense at all. Um, You know, what's with uh, this goat with seven horns and this dragon rising from the sea and, you know, Christ with a flaming sword coming out of his mouth? It was a bunch of symbols, and they drew my immature mind in. But, you know, it it was uh, the Lord preparing my heart for salvation because I didn't understand it, and I wanted to know more. And sometimes that's how God draws us in, is we don't understand something, and then he puts the seed in our heart to want to know it more. And I think John does a wonderful job at that because he doesn't speak to us in very plain language. Uh, He speaks to us in language that is packed full of content and meaning. Uh, Almost each word that he uses is pregnant with um, references in the Bible, references to his culture and their understanding of the world. Uh, It's packed full of meaning for you and I, eternal uh, meaning. But we need to pay attention to that because it's important as we're reading the book of John to not almost skim past a single word because all of it is there for us as the church, for his glory. Um, You know, when I... I became saved after having read many of John's writings. And, you know, this was much to my mom's chagrin that uh, when I got saved, I took a big industrial black marker and wrote on my bedroom wall that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Um, And uh, it was just that phrase in itself that I love to think about, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's our God. He is pure. He is holy. He is good. He is just. And there is not even a single iota of a taint of any darkness whatsoever. Um, and that's a huge theme of the book of John is God is light. And, and Jesus Christ is that light that has come into the world. And the darkness does not overcome it. And that's a really sort of old English word for this idea that the darkness cannot pounce upon and destroy violently the light. Um, That there is nothing that darkness can do to remove light from where it wishes to go. It's almost as if it is a vapid ghost that flees in the presence of light. Um, And so this writer, John, the evangelist, had an effect on me. Uh, He had an audience in mind when he wrote his scriptures, and I feel I was that audience. And I think you all are too. Um, There's something larger than life in all of his writings where 
Many of the authors of the New Testament are concerned with making their writings plain and simple and understandable, as we need that as well, because it's not always easy to find uh, meaning in complex subjects. Um, But John is unconcerned with simplifying his message at times. Um, In the book of Revelation, he goes as far to say that there's a blessing in this book if you understand it, implying that it's very hard to understand Um, that there should be mental effort and rigor put into studying not only the book of Revelation, but all of John's writings. And his writings are meant to lead us into the rest of the Bible, as we'll see. Um, The gospel, and not just the accounts of the gospel, the gospel, properly speaking, is as simple as believing Jesus died on the cross for your sins. An infant can believe that and have eternal life forever. Um, but John is a little bit like Billy Mays when he says, but wait, there's more, right? Um, There's always more, that the gospel is as simple as it needs to be for anybody to believe and be saved, but it's infinitely complex and detailed and powerful, and there is an endless depth to the truth within what Christ has done for us, and John is just wanting to tell you as much about it as he can in as short of phrases as possible. Um, So who was John? Uh, John was a disciple, and he was the brother of James. Uh, They were known as the sons of Zebedee, uh, which is interesting, and I hadn't known this after the study, but that would make John a first cousin to Jesus. Um, Mary, who is identified as Salome, um, is also identified as Mary, Jesus' sister. Um, And in John 19.25, so uh, as, and it is then identified that Mary, Salome, is married to Zebedee. So if the sons of Zebedee are then the sons of Salome, and Salome is the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother, that makes John first cousins to Jesus. Um, That probably means that they lived in a very small town, and John grew up with Jesus, you know, he was not one of the disciples who was called, come, follow me. He was there at the very beginning. He saw Jesus as a child. He saw Jesus as a teenager. Uh, he saw Jesus as a young man. Uh, and he saw Jesus as the crucified and risen Savior. Um, and he is bringing to us this message that he has witnessed, uh, that there is no doubt that Christ is the God, uh, that he is very God of very God. Um, it's almost as if Jesus' best friend is coming to tell you that this is, in fact, true. And I know that all of you have best friends, and none of them would, would testify to the fact that you're God. Um, so I think that we can, we can take that and run with it to the bank. Um, and John and James are also known as the sons of uh, Boanerges, or the sons of thunder. They had a massive zeal for the glory of God. Um, They wanted to rain down fire on Jerusalem for not being more welcoming to Jesus. You know, I I don't really have that sort of zeal in my heart. I can't just imagine being like, wow, they don't like Jesus. Burn them, you know. Um, But uh, that's how much they had a strong commitment to Jesus Christ, uh, that they would go to Jesus or ask their mom to go to Jesus and say, hey, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom? And Jesus is like, can you drink from the cup that I drink? Um, And they're eager. They're like, yes. Uh, And 
you know, in a way they do because they suffer with Christ, but they didn't know what they were asking at the time. Um, and I think that it's interesting that John's accounts of himself aren't exactly glorious accounts. They're pretty humbling accounts. You know, the, the quick judgment and the swift desire to be at the right hand of God, that's pride. That's a bit of pride and ego. Um, and zeal can often be sort of conflated with pride. And, um, you know, he kind of makes, I think it's almost a joke on himself because when you read his later writings and you read his epistles, the Lord has seriously brought him back and reminded him that this message of the gospel of reconciliation is about love and light and joy and peace and patience and sharing the truth and love. Um, But it isn't without judgment at the end of the age. And it's not going to be coming through men. It's going to be coming through our Savior who has a flaming sword coming out of his mouth. Um, But in this age, in our church age, we go out there and we bring the word of God, which is called the sword of the spirit, and we make war against principalities um, by preaching and teaching and sharing the word of God. So as a lifelong witness of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, um, John writes in uh, 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and I believe that this is basically John's thesis for uh, his writing anything. I think that if you're reading John, you should have this in the back of your mind. Um, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is John's thesis statement um, and the gospel of John kind of just runs into that and sucker punches you with the truth and here John's kind of giving us a preface for what he's doing in his writing Um, and his thesis is essentially this Jesus Christ who is God really came down from heaven and taught us the truth about God as a man Um, that he is life And that we can have that life by believing that he is God and trusting him to save us. That John is writing to teach us that God is who he says he is. That Jesus is that God and he is who he says he is and we can trust their testimony. Um, And in his writings he is utterly concerned with proving the deity or the godhood of Jesus Christ. Um, He doesn't waste any time. And he comes out of the gate swinging in John 1 1. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. It is so full of meaning for us as the church. Um, the phrase, when you hear the phrase in the beginning, if it is without qualification, it means it's the beginning of beginnings. If you don't put it in a context, if you don't put it in sort of this is the beginning of this class or job or event, if you just say in the beginning, that means it's the beginning of beginnings. Um, And we also know that this is the first words of Genesis in the beginning. Um, In just three words, John lays flat his readers with staunch Trinitarianism. Uh, He doesn't 
preach and teach that there is only one God and one person. He preaches that there is a God and he exists in at least two persons in this verse. The God, above all, in all, and through all, and the Word, who we will later see is identified as Jesus Christ. But we have a third person, if we go back to the original reference in Genesis 1.1, that the Holy Spirit dwelt over the face of the deep. And if both Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit was there at the present in the beginning, before anything was created, that means that they're both eternal. And God defines himself as being the only one who is eternal. So, if they possess the attribute of eternality, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all God. If there are not three gods, there's one God. Um, this word was, in the beginning was the word, uh, is the Greek word en. Uh, in the sentence, it is a verb in the impersonal, indicative, active sense of the root word imi, which means to be or say I am. Um, it is a statement about one's being. <clears throat> this means that this word teaches us that this existence uh, before the beginning is an action performed by the word, that he himself exists, and he is existent in himself. Um, it is uh, a performing word, an active word. It isn't just something that happens to him, but he has being because God is absolute and perfect in all that he does. Nothing gives him his substance or identity. He himself has had it forever. There is no sense in this word where the Logos was at point, one point not existing. Rather, the tense and mood of the verb implies a constant act of existence forever. Um, John is making as clear of a statement as he can with his phrasing of this word, that the Logos was there forever. And as we learned last time, uh, this word logos was chosen by John for its unique philosophical understanding and application by the Greeks. Uh, but it also has a firm grasp in the mind of the Jewish people as well. When you read the Old Testament, what was it that always came to the prophets? Uh, is it not the word of the Lord? Um, and the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and the word of the Lord came to David, and the word of the Lord came to Samson. Um, it is this powerful motivating factor that pushes uh, redemptive history forward by communicating to his people in a way that they can understand. Uh, John was pointing out to both the Greeks and the Jews that Jesus Christ is God in just a few words. Um, that he is both eternal, having no beginning, and he is identified both with the impersonal serendipity of the Greeks and the personal providential ruling of God by the Jews. And he doesn't make a sharp distinction between these two. He just says the Greeks didn't know who was behind controlling all things, and the Jews didn't know to what extent he does control all things and can do things in this world. Um, making Jesus's, the Logos's will, the sovereign will that all the world bends under, John is telling his reader by this title, Logos, that Jesus Christ is God, and God is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is pre-existent. He was forever, but he is also co-existent with God. So those are the two 
real important handholds that we should have is that Jesus Christ is pre-existent, that he was there forever, without end, before and after, but he is also coexistent, that he exists in the same essence as God, that he has no division of his being with God that God the Father has or God the Spirit has. They are all three God, yet there are not three gods, but one God. So when we read the phrase, and the word was with God, and the word was God, it really doesn't make any natural sense for a person to be with another person while also identifying with that other person. If I came to you and said that I am with Josh Ross, and I am also Josh Ross, you may be asking, is Josh Ross in the room here with us? Um, with a suspicious, a suspicious look on your face. But John is u- using unique language to immediately drag us out of the sense that you can have a reasonable expectation of who you think God is apart from his word. That there is no conception of God that you could have possibly imagined that even remotely maps on to who God truly is. That the Trinitarian is not intuitive to our natural reasoning. To say three is one is illogical in the natural world. To say three is one in the spiritual world is foundational and controls our belief system. And we need to keep those two things separate. That never the two, the twain shall meet, but they're both integral to understand this world. Um, unless you can see in the Bible that Jesus Christ is God, and we see that here, but we also see it that all of the titles that are rightly ascribed to only Yahweh in the Old Testament, all the worship that is due unto God from all of eternity are also ascribed to Jesus Christ. He is called Mighty God. He is called Prince of Peace. He is called Wonderful Counselor. He is worshipped as Savior and Lord. He performs miracles. He forgives sins. He only does the things that God does ever at all times. Jesus is God. Unless you fully confirm the deity of Christ, you will fall into one of a few ancient heresies. The first is Arianism which plagued the early church, that there was only one God and and Jesus was not God, but he was some form of a man and and they deny his deity. Um, Or uh, you will fall into the heresy of the Docetists and the Docetists deny his humanity and lift him up as purely God. And we always have to fall out of the ancient heresies and fall in line with where the church ruled on these things because they have made solid arguments from the biblical account that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. That there is not two gods or two Jesuses, but one God. And this one God is manifested to us in Jesus Christ as three persons. Um, As confessional Reformed Baptists, we know that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods but one God. We know that these three persons are eternally distinct. Each person of the Trinity never becomes a member of the, uh, another member of the Trinity. The Father never becomes the Son, the Son never becomes the Spirit, the Spirit never becomes the Father. These are all three distinct persons. And that heresy is called modalism. Um, God is one God in three persons. And we cannot subtract the humanity of Jesus, we cannot subtract the deity of Jesus, and we do not confound the persons of the Trinity. 
And we know that there is one God, and this one God is not another member of the Trinity. Uh, Rather, the three persons of the Trinity all participate in the divine essence. So, with the Athanasius Creed, we confess that all members of the Trinity are co-equal in divinity and make up only one God. All that to say is, unless you have a, a true biblical understanding of the Trinity, of who Jesus is, Salvation will elude you. This isn't high-level doctrinal theology. This is foundational for us to understand who God is. Because if we don't understand that, that Jesus Christ is God, he has no capability to atone for us for our sins because there is not one man who has ever existed who could be called sinless. And Jesus Christ is sinless. And he's sinless not merely because he's a good man or a great man, Or the greatest man that ever existed, he did it because he was God. And he was demonstrating that only God could do this on behalf of sinful man. That he should come down and die on the cross for the sins of those whom he has chosen so that they might have eternal life in him. Now, if you don't understand, and this is an extension, that the Holy Spirit is God, you won't know how your salvation works. You won't know that faith is a gift that is given to you by the Holy Spirit. You won't know that it comes to you and enlivens your heart and gives you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. That the Holy Spirit is not merely a tool that God uses, but he has his own sovereign will. It says that the wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, and you do not know where it has come from or where it is going. So it is with the Spirit of God and all those who are born of him. We have a sovereign Lord in the Spirit of God. And so, you know, whenever I hear people are having a revival, I just think, I didn't know that you were that tight with the Holy Spirit to tell him what to do. Um, And so Jesus reconfirms this truth as he makes sure that we know that it was truly the Logos who was there with him in the beginning. He restates it. He wants you to know that he was there, that he existed, that there was nobody there before him besides God who he co-eternally existed with and then he tells us what he was doing that he was the means by which God created all things that nothing at all ever has entered into creation that had not passed first through the mind and will of the logos through our Jesus although Proverbs is speaking of wisdom I think these words can rightly be applied to our Lord uh, Proverbs eight twenty two through 31. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. The first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up. At the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped. Before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields. Or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he assigned to the sea its limit. So that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then... I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. John is writing about this Jesus, who crafted everything, and sustains all of us here even now. 
that if he should remove his sustaining hand from us, we would all vanish and fall into dust. This Jesus whom John laid his head upon his chest, this Jesus who crafted everything, he is our Savior. He is the ruler of all things. And he has promised us that he makes all things work to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. When I'm working at the elementary school, uh, sometimes I'll get a question from a kid. Where did God come from? Um, And I love this question because it's maybe one of the first times that they're ever going to have their minds boggled by God. They just, when when you tell them it, they just go, I don't really understand that. I'm like, good, you don't have to. Um, But they all have this same line of logic. I have parents. My parents have parents. My parents' parents' parents have parents. And if I track that all the way back to the very beginning, that must mean God has parents. I think that's maybe where Mormons came from. No one just taught them as children that he existed forever. Um, But it's such a blessing to see their furrowed brows when I tell them that no matter how far back they can think, God is already there. He was already there. That even before they imagined him going there, God had already been there for eternity. And, you know, they just go, that doesn't make a lot of sense, Mr. Ross. And I'm like, that's okay. That's what it means to be God, is that he doesn't have to make sense to you. He exists beyond your understanding. You can only ever grasp at the edges of his robe and say, Lord, carry me Carry me where you want to go. But he never goes, well, you have to understand me all the way first. He goes, trust me. I've been here forever, and I will continue to be here forever. And I'm telling you to trust me in this place right here and right now. And I say, if there is anyone or anything that has ever existed forever, it would be God too. Because only God exists forever. And so a very definition or how we understand God, is that God exists forever. If you think anything else exists forever, that too is God. But nothing else exists forever. And so the children, they get to understand, oh, God exists forever. That's what it means that he exists forever, that he is God, and nothing else does. And it kind of goes, I kind of understand that, but I'm just going to trust him. So I love teaching kids about that. That's, That's a wonderful blessing that the Lord has granted me. But as a reminder, and this is where our application is, and we'll end here, um, his aim in his writing is to prove the deity of Jesus Christ, but he's also doing this so that our joy may be full. That we don't have a God who tells us what to believe and then doesn't bless that knowledge. That the knowledge of God is automatically and powerfully linked to our blessing this life, that if you can hold on to the knowledge of God and trust that he has always been there, your joy will be full no matter what. It cannot be robbed of you because it's spiritual and it's an eternal joy that God has promised to give to those who love him. Does it delight you, dear Christian, dear brothers and sisters, to know who God is? Is it not your utmost pleasure that you know God? There have billions, been billions upon billions of humans who have lived their entire lives not knowing a single iota of the glory that has been revealed to us 
in Jesus Christ. And here we are with the whole book ready and open to be read and understood. That there is an order to the universe, that there is an eternal principle of justice and mercy that governs all things and that will one day make all things right and that this principle will correct anything and all things that has ever happened, all rights, all wrongs, all sins, all tears, they will either be punished in hell by the justice of God that is pure and perfect, or they will have received mercy on the cross of Jesus Christ, that all of these things are under the control of our God, who is the Logos and who has been there forever. How lovely is it to know that the one who has orchestrated the stars in the heavens and carved the black caverns underneath the sea has been completely willing to suffer and die on your behalf to make all things right. It should not only boggle the minds of children, it should boggle your mind as well. There's no reason whatsoever that Jesus Christ should die for you. There's nothing lovely that has drawn you to him in yourself that there is nothing that makes you worthy of his love, that in fact, the goodness that he gives you is demerited. You have done the exact opposite of what he has told you to do so that you might earn only wrath forever, and he has given you, if you believe, eternal life and blessing forever. Let that boggle your mind. It will boggle your mind when you enter into heaven. You'll get there and you'll recognize that you did not understand 0.1% of any part of that salvation. And you'll sit there and go, oh Lord, thank you. Thank you. It is sublime that we have a Savior that we know orchestrates all things. And this one who orchestrates all things is not some vague, abstract, generic principle who makes some good things happen, some bad things happen sometimes, but that there is not one single atom in all of existence that is not controlled by this, saving, this suffering Savior who died for you. Amen. Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for the fact that you have existed forever. Um, God, I just pray that that would uh, draw us out of our sense of the worries around us, the weaknesses of our flesh, the um, problems that uh, strike out us at us in the day, the, the trials of Satan, Lord, but rather instead we would go, for some reason, the Logos, our dear and loving Savior, has orchestrated this for my good, and I surrender unto it because I know that he has promised me good through this. Lord, I pray that we would sit under that teaching, sit under your glory, sit under the fact that we cannot comprehend you at all because you are far above us. But we hold on to you and apprehend you and trust you with everything that we have. And you say, that is enough for those who call on the name of the Lord and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, shall be saved, God. And I pray, I pray, Lord, that all of us in this room will have done that. We thank you for the book of John. We thank you for the writings of John. Please help us understand it all the more, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.